Well, hey, Mosaic. Morning. If you're a guest with us, okay, first of all, how many people jumped when the car alarm went off? Anyway, <laughs> first service, everybody jumped. Uh, if you're a guest with us and you're wondering why in the world we're showing zombie video clips um, and why we're doing this series entitled The Walking Dead, um, we, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago we, we started the series and what we did basically is we kind of framed the conversation and asked a question. And all we did for the entire morning is ask uh, a question. And we looked at a bunch of p- different people in the scriptures to begin with. And we looked at how just this, this difference between what we see here and what we see here, kind of in the Western evangelical Christian church thing, and why they look so different. So we looked at like King David. And, you know, David is writing these psalms that, that strike us as very strange. And he says things like, you know, my flesh yearns for you. And when I'm laying in bed at night, Lord, I think about you while I'm in bed. And I hunger for you and thirst for you in the same way that an animal that is dying in a parched land hungers and thirsts for you. Right? Something that is like different than just friendship and it's different than just reverence. It's, it's far deeper. It's guttural. Um, it's passionate. Right? And so he would, he would say things like Psalm 27.4, he writes, he says, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord in all the days of my life, so, uh, all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Right? And then we looked at like Habakkuk. And he's saying some of the same kinds of things. And he's saying, look, no matter what happens in my life, right, whether we've got food on the table or we're starving, Right, whether business is good or business is bad, or whether my relationships are just doing awesome, or I'm just fighting to keep it all together, he says it really doesn't matter as long as I have the Lord. So bring it on. Very different, right? And so then we looked at like the Apostle Paul. And Apostle Paul and some of the New Testament guys start saying some weird stuff. And they start saying stuff like, you know, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right? And we talked about, man, if you were trying to snuff out the movement of Jesus, as many people were in those days, the Apostle Paul would have been the most frustrating guy. Right? Because they would come to him and be like, Paul, you need to shut up. You need to quit talking about Jesus or we're going to kill you. And he would say things like, well, you know, to die is gain. Bring it on. You know, and they're like, all right, well, we're going to let you live. To live is Christ. Let's do this thing. Right? And, then, and then they're like, well, okay, we're going we're gonna to strip the skin off your back. We're going to beat you. We're going we're gonna to shipwreck you and, and leave you on an island to die. Right? And he would say, well, you know, I, the things that I'm suffering now, I, can, I consider them nothing like, compared to the the future things that Jesus has for me. So what ocean are we going to? And then they try to throw him in jail. They're like, all right, we're going to lock you up. That'll shut you up. Right? And then he just starts singing, singing songs in jail and converting all the other cellmates and all the prisoners or prison guards start coming to Jesus. Just like, dang it, like, how do we shut this guy up? Right? That's a passion and a life that I don't see a lot of. Like, it's just different. Uh, I'm, I'm hungry for that. I want to experience that. But there are a lot of days when, when I don't feel like I am. So where is that, right? And so then we look not only like biblically at men and women throughout the, the scriptures who hungered and longed for God in this just zealous way, but then we looked at, at history, right? So we looked at guys like Augustine, and we looked at guys at like Charles Spurgeon, I think it was, who said, man, uh, consider, can, compared to all the pleasures in this life, Jesus is better. So it's like, I've had sex, sex is great, but Jesus, you're better. Right? This wine is phenomenal, but Jesus, you're better. Right? Wealth? It's good. I can do a lot of good with wealth. But Jesus, you're better. Right? And then we looked at like John Owen. And then we looked at, I think the most memorable quote that we looked at was probably Brother Lawrence, who was that 16th century monk. Right? And he said, I have at, at times had such delicious thoughts on the Lord 
that I am ashamed to mention them. And I was like, oh, man, what does that mean? You know, like, where do we file that? Uh, I've had a lot of thoughts about the Lord, but none of them, what I say, are delicious. Right? And then we went beyond that. Right? And then we looked at Romans 8. We talked about creation itself. And how, in Romans 8, it talks about how creation itself longs for Jesus to return and to restore what has been broken by sin. Right? And so trees creak and wolves howl as it longs for Jesus to come back, right? And so then we got to the question. It was like, and the question was not, hey, have, have men and women longed and hungered for God passionately in this way throughout the scriptures? And it wasn't, have men and women historically longed for God with this guttural, unquenchable fire, this passion? And it wasn't even if whether creation longs for God in this way, but our question was, why don't we? Right? Why is it when we look around just at the, just kind of the landscape of, of just Christianity in, in America, Right? Why does it seem that there's so many like good church boys and girls, good church men, good church women, but so few who long for Jesus in this way? Right? Why, where is the passion? Where is the life? Where is the freedom? Right? Why, where, why, is the, why the indifference? Why does it seem that when we look around, just kind of in the Christian conversations oftentimes, why does it seem that there's more people who would say they're Christian who, who are more like they're walking dead than running free? Right, and so that was a question. I didn't mean to leave you hanging on that question for two weeks. I got sick last week, uh, so I do apologize for that. That wasn't intentional. But this morning, I do want to start to, to try to answer this question and suggest some answers. And in fact, over the next several weeks, I want to suggest some possible answers. And they're all, they're all intertwined together. And my hope and my prayer, honestly, is that these will shake you up a little bit. Like As we talk about this, I hope that there's at least one that hits you right between the eyes and awakens you for the life that is possible, that you don't have to be walking dead, but that God, in fact, desires something so much more for every single one of us. Right? And this morning as we talk about this, all these are related really to story. Right? Because when I look around at just the, the church and Christianity as a whole in the West, like the little bit that I get to see, it seems that just like Jim in the opening clip that we watched, that we are... We, we find ourselves in a story that we don't fully understand. Right, so we, w- we watch this clip, and 28 Days Later is one of my favorite zombie films, so you just got to bear with me. I'm going to keep doing this. But, but he, he wakes up in this fog. Right? He, he, we find him in, in a coma. He wakes up in the hospital, and, and he has no idea how long he's been out. He has no idea what's happened while he's been out. Um, but while he's been out, this disease has just ravaged London. And there's zombies. You know, he doesn't see any just yet. But there's, there's just this shell of humanity that's left. Right? These, these creatures that can't create, they, can't, they have no capacity to receive love or give love or to experience life or to give life. There's just this, this shell. And the beautiful irony of this clip is in the very next clip, it, he comes face to face with a bunch of zombies. And guess where they're all congregated? In church. All right, that's brilliant writing right there. I, that is just so appropriate. He comes into church, and this is where all the zombies are. And, uh, but for the moment, though, um, he doesn't understand the story in which he's woken up into. Right? And that's essentially where I believe many of us find ourselves. We have no idea. Because many of us, we kind of act like it's just us and God in this universe. We, we act like we read Genesis 1, right? And, and we think that the story starts there. But when we, when we read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, when we're created, there's so much that has happened uh, before then. And we don't, we don't get that. We don't understand it. Right? We think it's just us and God, and so we kind of casually go through life where like God is fire insurance. 
right? And so we love talking about the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God, but it's like always there for the taking. And I think for most of us, it's like, I'll get there. You know, when, when it's convenient, when life is okay, I'll get there. But right now, I'm just kind of struggling to make ends meet. I'm fighting to keep the family together. I'm fighting to start a family. I'm fighting to, to start, find a career that doesn't suck the life out of me. I'm fighting to get through school. And it's like always the next thing. It's like once I get around that bend, once I get around that curve, then I'll pursue it. But for now, it's like pursue this, this God that I can't touch or taste or see or smell or hear in the way that I want to. Like who has time for that? So I'll get there, right? but not now. Right? We live as like it's just us and God. And so, which, by the way, is why we're so confused when bad things happen to us. Right? And we wonder why relationships are so incredibly difficult to maintain and to, to, to have good, healthy relationships. Right? And we struggle to understand why there are days when it just seems like everything is bent on making our life horrible. You know, it's like nothing is going right. We struggle to wonder why evil exists in the way that it does. Right, we read the news, it's like bombings in Boston. and right, How can somebody kidnap three girls and lock them in a house and rape them and murder the children? It's just like, we struggle to make sense of that because we act like it's just us and God. And so how do we typically respond? We blame Him, right? Go through hard times. God, why in the world did you let this happen? Right, God, if you are good... How could you allow this? God, where were you when I walked through that? God. Right? And here's what I want to suggest to you, that it has oftentimes absolutely nothing to do with God. Right? We're asking the wrong question because we still think it's just us and Him. And so we need to come to grips with another character in the story in which we find ourselves um, that cannot be ignored. And yet we try to as best we can. Because here's the thing, your life, what I want to suggest to you is your life will never make sense. It will never make sense to you until you come to grips with the fact that you have an enemy and you have been born into a war zone. And that enemy wants to steal from you the life that is offered by your Creator. He would love nothing more for you to wander through this life aimlessly, lifelessly, estranged from your Creator. And that enemy has a name, and it's Satan. Now, here's what I know. I just lost like half of you, right? At least... Half of you that are in this room, half of you listening to the podcast, and, and that's because we are good Western Americans, right? And we do not like this idea of a personal evil, Satan, the devil. I mean, doesn't it just bring up like the little guy on the, your shoulder images of that with the pitchfork and the horns and the red tights? It's like, how on earth can we take this seriously? Now, here's, here's the interesting part, though, right? If you were to travel the world, and you were to go to Africa, Asia, Latin America, most of the rest of the world, they don't have a problem with this idea. This idea of spiritual struggle between spiritual good, uh, spiritual forces of good, and spiritual forces of evil. In fact, they would tell you, and these are, not all, these are not just primitive, uneducated people. Educated people, cultured people, civilized people would tell you that this helps them make sense of the world. That for all the way that they've come, through centuries and generations, that this is still how they understand the world. But we, we don't buy that, right? right the Western mindset is, is about scientific reason. right? We believe in that which can be measured, that which is concrete. 
right? And, and our idea when it comes to evil, the, 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 the necessary implication is that when we look at all types of evil, you know, whether it be greed or racism or crime or, or violence or cruelty, that it must have a natural explanation, right? What are those natural causes, right? We look typically to things like psychology and sociology, right? So we look at, boy, what happened to that person psychologically in their developmental years to make them that way? Right, or we look at sociological causes, the, the, where they were raised, or, or social systems to explain it. And here's what I want to suggest to you. That whole explanation of things is wearing thin. Right? Even in the Western world. Andrew DeBanco is a scholar at Columbia University, and he wrote a, a book uh, years back called The Death of Satan. And this guy's not a believer. Right? In the book, he calls himself a secular humanist. Uh, but his thoughts are very interesting on this. And I don't, really, I don't usually read books by secular humanists, uh, not because I can't learn from them, I just don't have a lot of time. But Tim Keller, uh, he pointed me in this direction, and so mad props to him this morning. I owe him a lot of credit. Um, but in this book, okay, Andrew DeBanco, this is what he says. He says, I'm a secular humanist, and yeah, this is what he writes. He says, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. We have jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic evil or transcendent evil, or supernatural evil. We don't believe in it. In fact, we don't even like to use the word evil because it implies moral absolutes and value judgments. So we use medical terms. We talk about dysfunction. We talk about pathology. We don't use moral terminology. But as the 20th century has gone on, it has gotten harder and harder to say that holocausts and ethnic cleansing and serial killing is just bad psychological and sociological adjustments. Right, and then he points to a very famous dialogue in Silence of the Lambs. Uh, he's pointing to the book, but of course, most of us have seen the film, I'm assuming. Right? Jodie Foster and what's his face? Anthony Hopkins, yes, of course. Amazing Hannibal Lecter, Anthony Hopkins. And he points to this dialogue where Jodie Foster's character, Officer Starling, she walks into the prison, this maximum security place, and sees Hannibal Lecter for the very first time. Right? And she wonders aloud, as to how this guy became the way that he is. And this is what she asks, kind of to herself. She said, what happened to him to make him so twisted? What happened to him to make him so cruel? And he overhears her with a big mistake. And so he, he answers her back. He says, nothing happened to me, Officer Sterling. Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism. Officer Starling, you've got everyone in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Then he says this. He says, look at me. Can you stand to say that I am evil? Right? And then Del Banco goes on, who's quoting him, and he says, modern people, you and I in the West, we cannot answer the monster's question. And he says, as we have continued especially with the amount of visibility that we have and the evil in the world, right? Something happens on the other side of the world. It's on Twitter and CNN.com like that. And he says, as this has continued, he said, as the 20th century has gone on, what we said 150 years ago, that all evil has natural causes, has scientific causes, it is wearing thin. Right? And so we used to say that when it came to things like racism and, and violence, that that was something for primitive people Right? Uncultured people, uncivilized people, not us. Right? But then World War II happened. Right? And then the Holocaust and the death camps happened. 
And it emerged out of what was the most cultured, arguably the most uh, civilized culture in the world. Right? And all of a sudden, our reasoning is not doing it for us anymore. It's wearing thin. Right? And then we turn to Marxism, right? which was pointing to social causes. and said, no, no, no. It's the distribution of resources. We've got the wrong people in charge, essentially. And we mixed it up, and we tried to remedy the situation. But then that fell flat, and we found out that it was no better than it was before. Right? And so now Marxism and the social, the social conversations around solutions for this, now we've thrown those in the dustpan as well. And over and over and over again, everything that says that, that when it comes to evil, that it's psychological, that it's social, uh, Del Banco says, falls flat. He says, we cannot today in the West account for the depth and the pervasiveness of evil. All right, so here's, here's the thing. Right, that's just essentially laying out the problem. Right? The Bible doesn't have that problem of answering it. Right? And so today what I want to do is lay just essentially a theological groundwork for talking about this problem of evil and how it intersects in our lives. And here's the thing, like a half hour before church, I cut this message in two. Right? And so there's a lot that is going to be saved for two weeks later. But there's a lot that can be said today in laying this foundation. It's something we've got to understand. Your life will not make sense until you understand this, until we come to grips with it. If you have a Bible, Ephesians chapter 6 uh, is where I'm going, beginning in verse 10. And this is what it says. This is fi- and this is a, a very popular passage of Scripture. Many of you are familiar with it. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to take your stand, uh, stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Right? And so the Bible talks to this truth that there is an evil that is far deeper than what we physically see with our eyes. Right? And it has a source. Right? And so here's, here's the thing. So in Genesis, what is it, 2, when God creates man and woman and we, we look at the story of human beings, oftentimes we think that that's the beginning of the story. But you keep reading the Bible and what you find is there was a lot going on long before that. And so in Act 1, right, there's just God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, And the driving force, we're told, the driving character of God is love. There's a lot of questions there. I get it. But the Bible doesn't try to answer most of them. That's all it says. But then there came a time when God created two races of beings. And before us, God created angels. And that was uh, somewhere around Act 1, Act 2. God creates these beings. And they're, they're similar to us in some ways. And that a very interesting part about the character of God is he always gives us free will. All of his created beings never forces his love on us, never tries to, to, to push us to, to act in a certain way without our choosing to do so. So he creates angels, and they have work to do like we do. They have jobs, ways that they participate in God's ongoing work. But what we're told is that one particular angel becomes very, very powerful and decides that he deserves the glory and the worship for himself. Right? Sound familiar? Right? Lucifer. And we're told that he leads a rebellion in the heavens. And that God kicks them out. And they're thrown to earth. And uh, they're separated from God. And evil for the first time enters into the creation picture. 
Right? And then Act 3 is when man and, and wife, right, Adam and Eve, enter into the human story. And so no sooner do we start creating alongside God, invited to worship Him, to serve Him, to commune with Him, again, given free will, that evil is there in a very cunning way to try to lure our heart, to disengage with God, to run from Him, and certainly, and that's exactly what we do. Right? And so by the time we're created, there's so much that has happened. It is not just us and God. Right? When, when the Bible talks about evil, it, it's not content to just talk about it in like this ethereal idea. But it gives it a name. Right? It says it's very personal. In the same way that God is personal, Satan is very personal. And in just how God is very, very active and at work amongst us, so is his adversary. Now, that adversary wants for nothing more than to, to hurt God, to, exe- to enact revenge on God, right, by hurting his beloved, which is you and I. A couple weeks ago, you know, I, I, I quoted one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. It's John 10.10. 10, right? It's where Jesus is talking about why he came. And he says, look, I've come so that they might have life and have it to the full. I love that verse. Right? It's quoted a lot. Uh, in the church. But have you ever noticed the, the very, the statement right before it? I mean, we're talking in the exact same breath what Jesus says. And this is what it says. He says this, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. All right? who do you think that thief is? I'll give you three guesses and the first two don't count. Right? It's Satan. And Jesus is saying, look, the thief is there to steal, to kill, to destroy, but I have come. Right, as a solution to this problem. It's very interesting. Part of me is a little bit surprised, honestly, that we still struggle with this. Because have you ever noticed that when it comes to the great stories that we tell, I don't know what your favorite story was growing up. Um, one of my ongoing favorites is definitely the Lord of the Rings stories. But in every great story, just about every one, there's a villain. Have you ever noticed this? Every single one. So Lord of the Rings, right? You got Sauron and Saruman. Right? Star Wars, you got who? Darth Vader, yeah. Any uh, Last of the Mohicans fans? Oh, if you haven't seen that, come on, guys. Last of the Mohicans, you got to see it. Right, you got Magua, right? You got uh, Peter Pan, Captain Hook, right? I mean, there is this over and over and over again a villain. It's, and honestly, it's hard to think of a great story without a villain. Why do you think that is? Is it, is it just that we're not very creative? So we have to just keep telling the same story? Or could it be possible that we are just telling the story that we find ourselves in? Is it possible that we keep telling the story because really, it's our story? The the Bible would certainly lend itself to that possibility. What the Bible says, again, is that that Satan comes after us specifically to hurt the heart of God. So if he can't get to God, he's going to get after his beloved. Again, another theme we see over and over, over, over in the Scriptures. Right, so Braveheart, one of my favorites. Right, again, you got another villain, Longshanks, right? That whole squad. Right, they can't get to William Wallace early in the movie. Right, the first enemy. So what do they do? Right, they kill his beloved. Right, Maximus, another one, another one of my favorites. Right, you got, uh, what was it, Commodus? Another villain, great villain. They can't get to Maximus, so who do they kill? Right, they go after his beloved. And we find this story. Just start watching for this. You're going to see it everywhere, over and over and over again. It's the same story. Could it be possible that we just keep telling that story because it's our story? 
and we're trying to make sense of it. So here's the thing, whether you realize it or not, whether you're living like it or not, you have to know that there is an enemy. You have an enemy, as hard as that might be for you to to wrestle with, as, as much as that might feel like mythology, and I guarantee there's a whisper in your ear telling you that it is, that you have an enemy. And the truth is, you've got to get this, because here's the thing, if you don't come to grips with this, you're going to struggle to make sense of your life for the rest of your life. You'll find yourself over and over and over again struggling to make sense of, of why bad things happen and why your relationships are such a struggle and why it's so hard to find work that satisfies and to provide for your family and to keep your family together. It's because we're in a fight. Right? It's because you were born into a war zone. Right? And every time I hear Christians say, man, why? Why is this happening? Right? Why am I taking fire? Why am I taking heat? Well, it's because you were born into a war zone. And it's going to be a struggle until you come to grips with that. All right, and the second reason you got, we've got to come to grips with this, and I'm laying this foundation now, is that not only will you not be able to understand your life, but you definitely will not be able to defeat right, the own darkness that resides, the darkness that resides in your own heart that will reside or does reside in your own family, in our city, in our world. Right, Paul is, he, in, in Ephesians 6, he is just pleading with us not to take this lightly. Right? He uses a word talking about struggle. He, Paul doesn't use the normal word for struggle in the Greek there. He's talking about wrestling with your bare hands in hand-to-hand combat. Right? So you can be in a fight with one another, right, and launching arrows or firing from afar. That's one, one kind of struggle. That's one kind of battle. Right? And you can be fighting like, Hand-to-hand combat, struggling, fighting. And that's one kind of battle. But the imagery here is of, like, I mean, weapons aside, you're, you're wrestling around on the ground, struggling for your life. I mean, this is like, this is very desperate imagery. He doesn't want us to overlook this. This is very, very important. And he's saying, look, we, you are in, we are in over our heads without God's help. And so Paul says, recognize it. Don't be oblivious to it. All right, this is our fight. So here's what I want to say. As we start the next couple few weeks, uh, two weeks from now, uh, next week we don't have church because it's uh, holiday weekend. Got our volunteer staff retreat. Uh, but two weeks from now when we get together, this is, I'm going to make this intensely personal because there's so much we could say about this and we need to dig in more than, we, more than we can this morning. But I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you just to do a little bit of soul assessment on the front end, okay? So first of all, I want to talk to the skeptics in the room. All right, this is Mosaic. I love Mosaic. As a part of Mosaic, I know that we've got a number of people in this room listening to the podcast that you're just feeling things out. Wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Wouldn't call yourself a believer. Um, And this particular subject is particularly hard for you to to come to grips with. And I get that. So I want to put out a challenge for you. Okay, first of all, right, if you find yourself in a boat where it's like, you know what, I'm open to God. I'm open to this whole idea, right? I'm here, I'm listening, I'm journeying, but this is not something... Uh, that I can accept. I, I want you to at least consider the possibility that you're being culturally very narrow. Because like I already said, right, this, we, we are in the Western world. Science, reason, concrete measurability, that is what we believe in. But again, if you were to travel the world and talk to most peoples around the world, they do not have a problem with this. This helps them to understand reality. This is how they would describe reality to you. That there is 
a battle going on between spiritual forces of good and spiritual forces of evil. And for us to say, well, you know what, I'm an American, and we believe in science, and we've progressed beyond that. And so I can't consider that possibility. It's pretty arrogant. And so I want you to at least, you at least got to consider that maybe you're being pretty culturally narrow if you don't believe that other cultures have anything to teach you. All right? So that's one. Secondly, you have to deal with the fact that Jesus acknowledged Satan a lot. All right? And Jesus says, like, just comes out and says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. All right? If you're open to the person of Jesus, what do you do with that? All right, this guy... I mean, do you just assume that he's a lunatic? Because I think that's where you kind of got to go, right? This guy's crazy. Talking about seeing Satan fall from heaven from, like, lightning. Right? And so you got to wrestle with, okay, I'm open to Jesus, maybe. Or I like Jesus. I'm resonating with some of what he says. I like this whole golden rule thing. I love loving your neighbor as yourself. I love the whole compassion piece, the whole grace of God piece. But I can't level with that. Well, there's some inconsistency there. Right? Because Jesus is either, I mean, it's like, do you just take some of it? Like, oh, I like that, like that, like that. Really don't like that, so I'm going to ignore that. Well, either Jesus might be crazy. He might just have to reject Jesus, right? Or consider the possibility that he's talking about something that is very real and that we're not supposed to miss. And then lastly, the last pushback, again, if you're a skeptic, is I would say, if you're a person that would say, you know what, I I think I believe in God. This idea of this cosmic good, I like that, I resonate with that, whether it's a higher power or some ethereal, whatever, but I'm opposed to the idea of Satan, well, then there's, again, there's inconsistency there. If you say, yeah, I'm open to cosmic good, but not cosmic evil. Right? Again, just intellectually, right? I challenge you to be more honest with yourself. Is there inconsistency there? So as we go through this next couple weeks, just challenge you to open up a little bit and ask some hard questions about what you believe. All right, now, for those of us who are followers of Jesus in the room, I have a different, uh, both an encouragement and a challenge. One of the most encouraging things, I think, about this particular passage of Scripture and throughout the New Testament when it talks about this idea of spiritual warfare and the struggle of what it means to follow Jesus is that you have to know if you find yourself in a place, you know, maybe you came to Jesus a long time ago, maybe it was recently, but you keep finding yourself coming back to this place where there's this turmoil, right? There's, there's this struggle, there's this inner conflict that doesn't go away, right? You need to just be encouraged that you're in good company. Because one of the testaments of this passage and the rest of the New Testament right, is that you can tell a Christian as much by their inner peace as you can by their inner struggle and conflict. That both are there. I dare you to start reading the New Testament through this lens. I dare you. If you want to be just, you know, if you want to take on uh, an aspiration and really go after it, I, I challenge you to read the New Testament through this lens. Through the lens of this idea of spiritual darkness of spiritual fight and turmoil and struggle. And what you're going to find is it is everywhere. It is all over the place. You will wonder how you ever missed it. And so one of the things you just got to know, if that is where you're at, here's what I know the lie that you're going to be hearing a lot of is, if you were really a Christian, you wouldn't feel that way. You wouldn't feel that anxiety. You wouldn't be dealing with that depression. You wouldn't be struggling with greed and selfishness. You're no Christian at all. Either that or... That's all a load of crap. You just need to throw that Christianity thing out. Obviously, you've given it a good go, and it's not taking. Right? You ever, any of those strike a chord with you? Right? Those are lies. You just have to be encouraged. You've got to know that this is central to what it means to be a Christian. And so to end, what I want to do is I want to read for you 
uh, just a short thing from Bishop uh, J.C. Riley. This is from over 100 years ago. He was an Anglican bishop, and he speaks to this. I mean, this has always been a problem. Again, this is over 100 years ago, but it's so good. This is what he says. He's speaking to true Christianity. Let us mind that word, true. There is a vast quantity of religion current in the world which is not true, genuine Christianity. It passes muster. It satisfies sleepy consciences, but is not good money. It is not the authentic reality that called itself Christianity in the beginning. There are thousands of men and women who go to churches and chapels every Sunday and call themselves Christians. They make a profession of faith in Christ. Their names are in the baptismal register. They are reckoned Christians while they live. They are married with a Christian marriage service. They mean to be buried as Christians when they die. But you never see any fight about their religion. Of spiritual strife and exertion uh, and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring, they know literally nothing at all. Such Christianity may satisfy man. And those who say anything against it may be thought very hard and uncharitable, but it, it certainly is not the Christianity of the Bible. It is not the religion which the Lord Jesus founded and his apostles preached. It is not the religion which produces real holiness. True Christianity is a fight. And then skipping down to the bottom, he says this. He says, let us consider well these propositions. Let us take care that our own personal religion is real, genuine, and true. The saddest symptom about many so-called Christians is the utter absence of anything like conflict and fight in their Christianity. They eat, they drink, they dress, they work, they amuse themselves, they get money, they spend money, they go through a scanty round of formal religious services once or twice every week but of the great spiritual warfare. It's watchings and strugglings, it's agonies and anxieties, it's battles and contests. All of this, they appear to know nothing at all. And then here's the question for us. Do we find in our heart of hearts a spiritual struggle? Are we conscious of two principles within us contending for the mastery? Do we feel anything of war in our inward self? Well, let us thank God for it. It is a good sign. It is strongly probable evidence of the great work of becoming like Christ. All true Christians are in a fight. All real Christians can be known as much by his inner warfare as by his inner peace. Right? So just, you just need to be encouraged if that's been your journey. That's normal. You're in good company. Jesus himself experienced that, and so do his followers. All right, but here's the rub, and here's the pushback. Right? If you would call yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and your life is void of that struggle and that battle and that war, and it's been more stroll through the park, right? more indifference and just kind of going through the motions than it is an ongoing fight, I don't think we're following the same Jesus. Right? So I challenge you to do a little soul assessment as we begin. And uh, when we come back together here in a couple weeks, we're going to get intensely personal on this. So let's pray. Lord God, I pray against that voice in our head that I'm assuming a number of us are hearing right now. That doubt in the heart, that questioning of whether this evil, this source of evil can be personal. This idea of Satan. God, I ask that you would open our eyes to see with 2020 vision what is actually going on that there's so much going on that we cannot physically see. 
And may we find, maybe take great comfort in that. And may we also find a great challenge in that. Right? There, there is work to be done. That there is a lot of growing that we have to do. There's a lot more you want to do in us. And there's a lot more you want to do through us. That there is a fight to be had. And that we are invited into that fight. Lord God, I ask that you would encourage those who have just been wrestling with the struggle of what it means to follow you. And God, that you would just assure them and remind them that that is normal. That's the way it's supposed to be. Because we've been born into a war zone. Right? And while the fight is yours, we are invited to battle. We are the ones who battle with you. And so Lord God, as we continue on this journey, I ask that you would just continue to teach us, enlighten us to the things that we do not know. Help us to see the things that we cannot see. Grow us up. Encourage us. Strengthen us. So as Paul says in Ephesians 6, in the end, we can stand and fight. So Lord God, we pray these things as your sons and your daughters. Amen.